is also a case from the Shoyoloku. Yantos bow and shout. Introduction. People are probed with words. Water is probed with a stick. Pulling out the weeds looking for the way is what ordinarily applied. Suppose suddenly their lips are burnt-tailed tiger. Then what? The case. Nyanto came to Deshan. He straddled the threshold and asked, Is this ordinary or is it holy? Deshan immediately shouted. Nyanta bowed. Dongshan heard of this and said, Anyone but Nyanta would hardly get it. Nyanta said, all Dongshan doesn't know good and bad. At that time, I was holding on with one hand and putting down with one hand. Hongxi's verse. Demolishing the oncomer, holding the handle of authority. Tasks have a manner in which they must be carried out. The nation has an inviolable law. When the guest serves reverently, the host becomes haughty. When the ruler dislikes admonition, the ministers flatter. The underlying meaning, Yanta asked Deshan, one upholding, one putting down. See the action of mind. So we just chanted this Dharma is rarely met with. Rarely met with. Why is that? Is it because it's far away? Or is it because it's so close? So near? So at hand? That we overlook it? Is it because our eyes are not clear to see? Because we are so distracted, so buzzed. An old master once said that someone with clear eyes has no nest. Which comes first, clear eyes or nest? What does it mean to be clear eyes, to have clear eyes, and what is nesting? As followers of the Buddha Dharma, we often call it Zen practice. We refer to everything we do, zazen, and everything around it. You know, we call it all as Zen practice, but what we really mean, or what we need to understand, that what we mean by practice is training. It's actually 
Zen training that we should see it as. Right? It's a, there's a difference between practicing something and training. Although we may refer to the same thing. But when we see ourselves in a process of training, there is a clear understanding that <clears throat> we are working on something. We are honing, sharpening, deepening. There's also a clear understanding that it's not so much about what we know, it's about what we need to learn. So maybe it opens up something, opens us up to something. And the training process is a training that's designed to put us, to push us out of our dogmatic way of being, dogmatic and restricted way of being. So we can function in a way that is radically different that, than what is conventional and what is logical. watching, we are watching the thinking mind, right? We sit and we observe it and it doesn't take long to see that most of the time it is occupied with creating divisions, building walls, stepping from one room to another, weighing them, quantifying them, right? and creating maybe a logical and an organized roadmap that often actually seems to make perfect sense. But while forming divisions may create a sense of logical, conceptual map, does it create a sense of clarity? Does logic create clarity? Can intellect alone free us? Does it put to rest the underlying sense of dissatisfaction? And if we would answer yes, then why are we here, right? Why are there practice centers? Why is there this thing we call Zen training, Zen path? What's the purpose of spiritual training? Visions feed the intellect, and the intellect creates logical explanations which can only provide temporal comfort and a very short-lived sense of satisfaction. And so what we need to do is train ourselves out of the restrictions of logic, to train ourselves to not create walls, not divide, the trend to trust that the open vastness is actually more secure than the divided reality that we create. And we do create it for a sense of security. Sense of boundary, sense of self, sense of other, sense of likes, dislikes, what works for me, what doesn't work for me. 
We need to train ourselves to not obey what we have been already trained to do and how we have already been trained to think. go against the conventional current, to go from being upside down to right side up. As in the words of Bodhidharma, he said, when we understand <coughs> that which is false becomes true. When we don't understand that which is true becomes false. We actually have been trained to value what is false and to disregard and reject what is true. And that training, that previous training, has been so systematic to a point of making us feel suspicious about what is real. And prefer and trust what is made up. So Zen training is a path of unlearning our false way of being and unleashing what is real and true in us. It's not inventing anything. It's not putting something on top of something. It's emptying out. I often see that in Aikido training, too. A lot of the training is to learn to let go, to learn to do less, actually. Yeah, there are all techniques that we work on to master, but, but essentially the purpose of it is to drop away the resistance or to drop away, period, and to trust. People come into Aikido practice trusting their muscles, trusting resistance. And we try, they try for a long time to push and push and push and get exhausted. And little by little realize there is another way. Or sometimes because we get exhausted, we just have nothing left. And then, when there is nothing left, something emerges. When we don't get in the way, something emerges. We get in the way physically and emotionally, mentally, psychologically. It's really all the same. The way we get in the way varies. The ways vary. But resistance is resistance. And it comes out of fear. Fear of not knowing. Fear of not existing, not being what we think we are. So we have to train to go against our previous training. And it's it's tough because it's very ingrained in us, which means we have to be very disciplined and completely dedicated to this path. 
means to see it as training and to wholeheartedly embrace it. Because if we don't do that, we do lose trust very quickly in it and go back to old patterns, defaults. It happens to many of us. So we have to train, we have to see this, especially here at Sashin. Everything we do is a part of the training. Everything. So we have to be diligent about it, but not uptight. Right? To train means to learn, and to learn means to make mistakes. If we have an expectation to not make mistakes, then where's the training? Maybe we think we're done. So how can we on one hand say, I'm training, and on another hand, well, I don't want to make mistakes. It doesn't work out. If we train, if we agree that we are, on the path of training, then we have to agree that we are going to make mistakes. Lots of them. We're going to fall down. We're going to trip. And that's fine. Not only that's fine, it's part of it, but that gives us a chance to observe how we meet a mistake. Right? Because when we make a mistake, all patterns are right there, waiting to come up. I'm no good. I knew I'm no good. I'm not good at this. I'm never going to be good at this. Or maybe I should do something else. Or however the self-critic shows up that moment. That's part of training. How do we meet that critic? How do we train to learn to meet it well, to meet it grounded from practice? We have become addicted to our way of being. And in a way, the path is, uh, or the center is a rehabilitation center. So we can wean ourselves of the addiction to self, to other, to a gap. Now, I spoke yesterday a little bit about returning home, which simply means turning right side up. Being right side up everywhere is home. Being upside down, mostly not. And most of us actually feel more at home being upside down, more familiar with. So to have clear eyes means to see things as they are and not 
as we have been trained to see them. And it means to speak and act from the clarity of seeing things as they are. Seeing things as they are, nothing is added, nothing else is needed. The voice of the critic is just not needed at that moment. Doesn't mean it doesn't try to assert itself. It's just not needed. So it may appear as a thought, but it will not arrive at the lips. So to act from clarity, from clear eyes. Master Foyan said, if someone should question you, how should you speak? Can you speak effectively? If you can only speak after thinking and concentrating, what use is your statement? At midnight, how do you speak? Getting up at dawn, how do you speak? In the hallway, in the washroom, how do you speak? Can you speak effectively? Your eyes must be clear before you can. To speak effectively means to express what needs to be said clearly and simply without being vested in anything without hoping for a particular outcome. Just expressing, just stating, just being. Nothing to defend. Not promoting an agenda. Not creating divisions. Speak from a place of clarity. But as he said, before we can express clarity, we need to experience clarity. That's why Foyan says that your eyes must be clear before you can do that. The way we speak actually reveals where we're at on our spiritual practice. Not that we have to be or get stressed out over that. But we can hear how we speak and learn something. Now, to, to get in touch with what we say, right? To get in touch with what we think, to understand what the thoughts are protecting, what others they serving. I was at class last week practicing with somebody and uh, during class I doing Aikido. Those of you who don't know, I also teach and practice Aikido. Well, I just practice Aikido. Sometimes on the side of the teacher, sometimes on the side of the student. So I was practicing and 
And there was a point I wanted to show her that if she does something, I can take that and redirect it and take another technique out of it, basically, without getting into details. So, and I pointed it out to show that if she does it a different way, then I will not have that possibility, that option. So I told her, don't give me anything because I can take it and use it. And I said, well, yeah, but I can also do this. I can do that. And right away, went into other areas. And of course, I backed off and said, sure, let's just keep practicing. No big deal. Right? But do, do we actually, I think for a split second, we get a glimpse of what's happening. But then so quickly, we're so trained. To, to actually act in a way of defending something. Something just got damaged. I have to recover it. Something got knocked down. I got to build it back up. Put up a wall. Quickly. regardless of whether or not uh, the words that we meet are doing anything what, that we think they're doing. But so often we don't even pay attention to what is being said. So words are important. The introduction says, people are probed with words. Water is probed with a stick. Now, back in those days, and we have to understand a lot of those koans and the commentaries and introductions were taken from the time, the place, the, the everyday life. So in those days, monks used to travel long distances by foot. They had to cross rivers along the way, and so they carried long stick. They would check the, the depth of the water before crossing. They would look for a place shallow place to cross. So the stick was the way to check the, the depth. And so they use that analogy to, in terms of teachings, in terms of practice. So when a, a monk would come and visit a teacher, they would have a dialogue. And the teacher would probe, would check. And they won't ask anything complicated. It's not, let's talk about some sutras. They would just ask, where are you from? What did you do before coming here? Just mundane questions. Nothing special. And they wouldn't need anything special in order to realize the depth of the person in front of them. So words can be quite messy, right? And how we use them can be detrimental, not just to those who hear us, but to us as well. We actually listen to what we say. 
I mean, our ears are the closest to our mouth, right? We listen and we react to what we say. Internally, emotionally. There's a Japanese saying, the mouth is the source of calamity. Very true. A person with clear eyes has no nest. On the other hand, a person that does not see clearly creates a nest through words and actions. And by protecting the nest, turn the wheel of samsara. That's how we create a mess. That's how we create divisions. <clears throat> recently talked to somebody who described challenging work situation with a long-time boss. And as she was describing, she used words like horrific, disgusting, shitty, and others. And I noticed as she was talking about it, she started to rev up. She actually got more vested in it and she became more upset as she was talking and describing. She wasn't as upset at the beginning of the conversation, but a few minutes into it, she was fuming. She wasn't facing the boss, she wasn't facing anything. Completely self-created on the spot. She got more entangled with the situation. So I just listened for a while and then after she stopped, I asked her to consider using words that focus on describing the situation instead of words that describe the emotional reactivity to the situation. Different language. And so she calmed down actually for a bit and was able to describe it in a different way. She described the same thing, but with completely different language. And the tone and the speech went from something very narrow to something very wide, very open. More inclusive, more factual, and more true because the facts she was describing are true, were true. In the sense that it is happening and it is something to deal with. But how do we deal with things when we get so entangled? And we don't need another person to actually vent. We do it internally. Maybe even here, on a cushion. Hours and hours of zazen. Right? It's a good opportunity to do that too, if you want. Another conversation, a different one, I spoke with somebody about uh, this vegan restaurant in the city. So I mentioned 
a book that was that uh, the chef wrote, cookbook. And the guy said, oh, yeah, I know that restaurant. I loathe that place. <laughs> it's one thing to not like it, but to loathe. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very strong language. I mean, what does it take for us to actually feel that way? Right? It, it, it's quite amazing how, how much we add to what we really want to say. That's fine. We have opinions. No problem. We don't have to like the same things. But to go from I don't really care much for this place to loathing it. Maybe he just wanted to, just like the word, he wanted to find a time to use it. <laughs> you know, so I think sometimes we want to show up with our vocabulary. That's possible. Anyway, so to, wh why do we do this? Why do we create? And, and, and this is how we build walls. When we say something like that, when we react so strongly to something, we actually convince ourselves more than anybody that there is something there to dislike or hate whether it's a situation or a person, right? And that fortifies the wall. Actually, our own words fortify the walls we create, which means the words that we speak turn back into further thinking about it. So more thinking, more words, more words, more thinking, and we know what are the actions that will follow that. Why do we do it? Why do we create bar barriers? Why do we get caught up in this need to satisfy something in us that wants to divide? Right? We create divisions and then we feel that we have to take sides. This koan mentions three prominent Chinese Zen teachers from the 9th century, Yantao, Deshan, and Dongshan. Although at the time of this dialogue, Yanta was not yet a teacher, based on the recorded stories. He spent some time at Dongshan's monastery, but ended up studying with Deshan and later on succeeding him. So when Yanta came to see Deshan, he straddled the threshold and asked, is this ordinary or is it holy? Straddling the threshold, debating whether to enter or leave. Will it be worth my time? Is there, is there a better place to practice? Should I be somewhere else? These are common questions for us, all of us. Right? Questions that cross our minds, create inner conflicts. Maybe even now, with this Tashin, we have thoughts about being somewhere else, 
maybe we fantasize about another place, a warmer place, right? It's getting colder. Which is fine, it's natural, but again, vacillating is a common phenomenon. Now, many people spend most of their lives on a threshold, on some threshold, and become more familiar with a static state of weighing out the options than with making decisions to fully commit. Go in and out, just go. Now. Can we do that? Fully commit to anything. Maybe it's going to be a mistake. Well, maybe. We don't know. But we got to try. Fully commit. All out. Down the road, you discover, ah, not good. Okay. Do something else. Again, fully commit. Is this holy or is it mundane? You know, some people choose to enter Buddhism because they perceive it to be a religious practice. And it fits what they want it to be. And then others may have a stronger version to religion and will stay away from Buddhism unless they are given reassurances that it is atheist practice or a philosophy. Just don't say it's religious. It's not what I want. Right? I'm willing to practice as long as you don't mess with my walls. But practice is going to mess with your walls. So then maybe we create all kinds of other versions of practice that help you stay within the boundaries of your walls. Maybe some mindfulness practices. Just practice being aware. Don't worry about it. But it's not religious. Good. We're not going to mess with your identity. Let's focus on one thing at a time. Breathe deeply. Right? Just don't mess with my walls. You know, what we call Buddhist practice has no walls, no divisions, no thresholds, none of it. It has nothing. And you are guaranteed nothing. You may remember I shared a few months ago during an adult education class I gave about Buddhism. Some guy asked me if I considered Buddhism a religion or philosophy and I just said to him, I don't consider it, I practice, you consider it. 
I'm not interested in considering. Considering is being on a threshold, weighing out the options. Neither here nor there. Standing by the sideline, commenting on life as it passes by. Kind of a pity to live this way, right? It's like the Muppet Show. Remember those two on the side <laughs> commenting on everything? <laughs> right. They never really got down from those seats. But they, <laughs> they had something to say about everything. There's a story from the Buddha's time. Once a non-practitioner held a sparrow in his hand and asked the Buddha, is the sparrow I am holding dead or alive? The Buddha stood by the threshold, one leg in, one leg out, and answered with a question. Am I about to leave or enter? Am I about to leave or enter? As soon as such questions arise, complications arise. And we raise waves when there's no wind. And when we don't see clearly, we create nests. And we create nests inside, outside, or on the threshold. But as practitioners, trainees. Our job is to watch the workings of the mind and to see that the nests are made of conceptual twigs, imaginary threads. Antar asked, is this ordinary or is it holy? Deshan immediately shouted, it. There is the answer. Deshan was known as a fierce teacher, actually. And it says that he ordinarily beat the wind and hit the rain. What a description. Deshan, you may know as Tokusan. You may remember from the story about meeting the old lady who was selling rice cakes on the road. That's the guy that came from the north to the south to prove them wrong. He had all these commentaries about the Diamond Sutra and he was traveling with them on his back. And his point was to, or the, the point he wanted to prove is that realization is Gradual, not sudden. Down in the south, they used to practice based on an idea of sudden realization. And he had an idea of gradual realization. So he went down to prove him wrong. And he met, on the way, he met an old lady that was selling rice cakes and tea, and he wanted to stop and eat something. So she asked him, what's in your bag? 
He said, oh, those are my commentaries of the Diamond Sutra. And she said, oh, great. I know a little bit about it. Can I ask you a question? She, he said, yes. And she said, well, I'm going to ask you a question, but if you, if, you, if you can answer it, I will give you rice cakes. If you cannot answer it, I will not even sell you rice cakes. And he said, okay, shoot. And she said, in the Diamond Sutra, it says that the mind of the past is ungraspable, the mind of the present is ungraspable, the mind of the future is ungraspable. With which mind do you propose to eat these rice cakes? He couldn't answer. He just stood there, looked at her, not knowing what to say. And the first thing he asked after that is, do you know any teacher around here? Not realizing he was facing one. So that was the beginning of his taking down the walls. He came, he traveled with a lot more than the commentaries on the Diamond Sutra. He traveled with walls and divisions. The heavy load to walk around with. There are no northern and southern ancestors we chant, right? That's what it's about. There are no divisions between sudden and gradual or anything else. There's a story about Yanta and Deshan, which happened later on after this, after the encounter in this koan. One day Yanta spread his sitting mat, Zabuton. He was just about to go sit for Zazen. Deshan pushed it downstairs with his staff. Yanto went down, gathered up the mat, and went away. Next day, he went up and stood by Deshan. Deshan said, where did you learn this empty-headedness? Yanto said, I never fool myself. Deshan said, later on you will shit on my head. Look at this amazing spiritual strength these two demonstrate in those encounters. It's incredible freedom. How would you react if I just pushed your zafu down the stairs, outside, in the rain? How would you go home? <laughs> Never come back. The hell with this. That's not support, right? But later on, you will shit on my head. That's not criticism. You will surpass what I'm doing. You will go on and spread the Dharma because it's alive because your eyes are clear. Your eyes must be clear before you can speak effectively. 
He said, I never fool myself. Right? How do we fool ourselves? Erecting conceptual walls, creating doorways, thresholds, nesting. Maybe more than anything, viewing the little we know as absolute truth. Viewing our thoughts as a way to understand reality. Right? That's how we fool ourselves. Thinking there is something to protect, something to defend. Someone to defend. We fool ourselves and we fool each other, too. We hold on to our own way of, or ways of nesting. And our own ways of nesting become standards, our own standards, which we think are absolute. And from there we speak with others. Right? Standing on an imaginary post of self, speaking to others. My, my daughter, who is in college now, she was talking with my, one of my younger daughters, who is just uh, finishing middle school. She's going to high school next year. So my older daughter said, Oh, that's going to be such a horrible experience. High school sucks. And on and on. And So my young daughter told me about it. And I said, well, maybe. The fact that it sucked for her doesn't mean it's going to suck for you. You know, maybe it won't be so bad. Maybe it will even be good. Right? We go through experiences and we... We actually make them fixed. We make them absolutes. We make them something to measure by, something to go by. And then we share that with others. How easy it is to get caught up by our own personal views Paint reality with our own color schemes and believe it's real. And the Buddha said, things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. Now, in the Mountain Sutras, Mountain Water Sutra, I quoted a little bit yesterday, Dogen said, as for water, it is neither strong nor weak. Nor is it is wet or dry, nor does it move or stay still, nor is it cold or hot, nor does it exist or not exist, nor is it deluded or awakened. It's neither this nor that. It's wide open. If you say it is, you create a nest. If you say it's not, you create a nest. Of course, the same goes for being on a threshold.
In this encounter, Yanta was not a novice into, in practice. Remember, he practiced with Dongshan for a while, and he went to check out to see that place, to see if he wants to practice there. So he was not a new, he was not a beginner. Yet he was, you know, he was standing there on the threshold with a divisive question. Why would he do that? Was he probing his teacher? Was he trying to initiate Dharma combat? Was he trying to prove his understanding? Or maybe he was just still sitting on some kind of a nest. Nest can also be made out of Dharma stuff, Dharma craft. Uh, could be made out of how far we have gone. We think we have gone on, on the path, how deep we think we have reached. And even after years of practice, we could still find ourselves getting busy creating divisions. So Dongshan gave out a piercing shout from a place of no walls and no divisions, no thresholds. And the footnote says, burst his brain. That loud. Now, of course, burst the brains, take down the walls, take down the divisions. Nyanta was trying to meet Deshan on the same plane, so he bowed deeply. But the footnote says, this is still not being good-hearted. There was some, still some remnants of taking aside. Some trace of agenda, maybe. A tendency to nest. To call it something. So Dongshan heard of this encounter and said, anyone but Yanta would hardly get it. And when Yanta heard about Dongshan's comment, he said, all Dongshan doesn't know good and bad. At that time, I was holding on with one hand and putting down with one hand. And often, these, these masters would use words for the sake of keeping the Dharma wheel turning. More, for, for this, more than for the sake of praise or criticism. But for us, when we read that, it seems as if, or it can be misleading. It seems as if there is praise, there is criticism, there is belittling, there is pushing up, down. But the question is for us, how do we bow in a way that fully expresses what is absolute and what is relative? How do we bow in a way that crushes down all the walls and all the divisions in our own minds? 
this is really the best way to bow, to bow in a way that just puts everything on the same plane, puts everybody on the same plane. With every bow, every time we put the forehead on the ground to realize there are no divisions. There is nothing to defend. Yantao said, all Dongshan doesn't know good and bad. But not knowing good and bad is he lost. Is he on the threshold? Or are we lost straddling the threshold between right and wrong. Are we not drowning in the sea of yes and no? Right? As we vacillate our way through life. Dongshan was living in accord with the inviolable law which governs without judgments or divisions, before good and bad arise in our minds. Or as D.T. Suzuki put it, it is at the level of pre-logic. It doesn't negate or reject logic, it's just pre-logic. One ground. Before the mind moves. And it includes what we perceive as good, what we perceive as bad. But while including everything, it doesn't fall into any category. It is totally free, totally clear. It includes everything as the description I read yesterday. But Vadokana Buddha, the last line, I am life force and I am destruction. Versus demolishing the oncomer, holding the handle of authority. Tasks have a manner in which they must be carried out. The nation has an inviolable law. Yanto came in with a question and was dealt with in a swift action by the authority of Deshan. But tasks have a manner in which they must be carried out. And so we have to bring up questions and raise waves when there is no wind. Yet, the nation has an inviolable law. No, Dharma is an inviolable law. It's the self-organizing principle of the universe. Everything is subject to this universal law. Everything arises within it. Even our notions of walls and divisions arise within the inviolable law. We build them within that and we realize that they are not there within that. It's all happening within that all-inclusiveness.
So Yantau is expressing the investigation of reality. And Deshan, with one piercing shot, is expressing reality before the investigation. And both are necessary expressions on the path of training. When the guest serves reverently, reverently, the host becomes haughty. When the ruler dislikes admonition, the ministers flatter. The underlying meaning, Yantaras Deshan, one upholding, one putting down, see the action of mind. And the lines, these four lines actually, refer to the interaction between these great masters and, and the way they respond to each other. How they keep the Dharma wheel turning. Right? And sometimes they would teach from the position of the absolute, sometimes from the position of the relative. But it's always the action of the one mind that has no nest. Mind that includes everything. When we use it well, our discriminating consciousness is actually a wonderful tool. It's a wonderful ability that can help us navigate through life. We have to be able to see differences. By itself, it's not a problem. It can also help us see the richness and abundance of life. But as long as we are ruled by the ability to differentiate, as long as we are ruled by that, we were going to keep building walls, keep getting trapped, keep feeling as if we have to make a choice. Not to feel as if we have to decide which room to go into. Not realizing it's just one big house with many rooms. We never get out of the house. Because there is no house. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Dongshan's five ranks, but that will be for another time. The last line of the verse says, one upholding, one putting down, see the action of mind. And one song, one song commented on this saying, in the present time, all novices who just shed their civilian clothes, us, Look at this line and say, how strange it is that these Zen folk did not, did not uh, consent to explain things through for people. After all, all of it is just the action of mind. And then he said, so these people, these students, become students clever at deceit. I say, one bit of mental action is a bit of compassion. If you don't encounter something, you don't know how to cope with it. 
pretty clear line, isn't it? If you don't encounter something, you don't know how to cope with it. You might say that fruit comes from within the flower. Sweet comes from bitter. Flower comes from practice and training. Understanding, realization comes from dedicated, wholehearted training. It's amazing how we come in with so much baggage. And if we're given the chance to speak about it, we speak about it in a very specific and absolute way. And then a day or two into Sashin, somehow we speak differently about it. What has changed? What is changing? You know, people come into Dokusan, sitting in the same place, right? We're all in the same place, have completely different expressions of what it is. For some, this is heaven. For others, this is hell. Is it here? Is it this place that has all this, has the ability to trap you, free you, at will? Or is it what we bring with us and how quickly we are willing to shed it, to let it be, to put it down? It's a journey, it's a long, the Buddha himself said it's a long, long journey. But it's okay, you know, training doesn't mean that we are training to arrive at a different place. We're just training. And training is living. So in a way, we are students of life. And as long as we are alive, we can keep training. We can keep getting better at it, better at living. to a point that we will be good at dying too, when that time comes. So our task is to hone the ability to see the action of mind in its entirety. Watch how the mind moves. And never stop training, not even for one single moment, from the moment we wake up in the morning to the moment we go to sleep, entire day of training. That's the good news. 